Hello, and welcome to the Mega Moth Studios official podcast. This is episode four, and we're going to be covering part three of our origin story today. Our journeys with mid-journey and templating cards. How do we do it? How do we make them unique from uh, the other TCG games? We're going to explore what we found out today on the official Mega Moth Studio podcast. So, Fortune Seekers, as always, I'm joined by my co-host and creative partner, Danny Ayub. Hey, Danny, how are you doing today? Hey, guys, I'm doing great today. It's another great day to be alive and not at the bottom of the ocean. <laughs> well, well so, uh, we might want this to be a little more evergreen, but yeah, we are in the week. In case you're watching this uh, down the line, we are in the week after the, uh, I forgot what the, it's like, it's not Event Horizon, but basically, the Titanic sub-disaster, which I'm sure our audience will recall if they didn't already uh, live through it just mo- mere weeks ago. And to be um, clear, this is not the Titanic sub-disaster known as Jared Fogel. This is a different one. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. I, I. You know what? It remind, that situation reminds me of the classic line from uh, the social media where... What was it? I think it was, um, what was the character that Justin Timberlake played? What was his name again? Do you remember? It was the guy from Napster, Sean something. Yeah, Sean something. Anyways, but he he just like turns to Eduardo and says, hey, would you buy a Tower Records these days? And it's like, would you start a Subway Subway franchise? Sean Parker. Sean Parker. Sean Parker. That's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think uh, Jared definitely did some damage to the Subway franchise. It, it, it. It grew so so much to where I would actually choose Subways over any Subway over any other chain fast food place, and then it just I, I don't know maybe people got their fill of Subway or Jared Fogel's you know crimes caught up with the company's reputation, but I would it barely crosses my mind if I have to settle for Subway, I'm kind of regretful that I have to eat in the first place. Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and deem Subway as an anti-sponsor for this episode because I just, (laughs) with or without Jared, I'm never happy to be eating a Subway sandwich. And now they're doing their fresh sliced meats and all I can think is, you know, how many fingers are getting sliced every day at a Subway, you know? Oh, jeez. Yeah. They're no no Jersey Mike's, you know? (laughs) They're trying to compete with Jersey Mike's and they are not Jersey Mike's. I, and yeah, Jersey Mike's, please sponsor the show. Um... I should probably introduce myself. I introduced you, Danny, but I didn't introduce myself. I'm Joel Watts, and I'm uh, the co-creator of X Seekers of Fortune. Danny and I created it together and started the uh, studio Mega Moth Studios uh, to yeah to publish it. And uh, yeah, and we are hosting, we are uh, running these podcasts in order to give you more information about the game and to chronicle our journey, chronicle our journeys of starting up a a, a game studio and releasing our first game so you know kind of to share our wisdom along the way um and so with today's episode as i teased up front we are going to be talking about two topics the first one is going to be uh how you utilized mid-journey in order to create prototype artwork so that we could have a, a prototype that looked very much like what we want the final product to look like and you, so we actually were able to print out what looks like traditional TCG artwork onto the, our cards. And while you focused on the art of the game, I focused on templating 
the cards, you know, uh, at the very least a prototype template that we're probably going to still revise from here. But we just wanted a we when we wanted when we wanted to be able to present a card or a set of cards to our customers and the people who demoed the game early on that would look a lot like what they're used to in uh, traditional board games or other TCGs. Yep. We're going to be getting into that topic here in a moment. Um, but before we do, I do have the question of the week for you, Danny. Oh, you know, I like questions. And yes. I like weeks. And the combination is delightful. So lay it on. You know, I, I, yeah, I, I like weeks too, but they're, they're turning, they're starting to get like way, very short recently. They're, they just fly by. Uh, yeah. Line them up, knock them down. Mm. Okay. Well, today's question is, it, because we're talking about art and art's on our mind, I thought I'd ask you, if you could display one piece of art in your living space, what would you choose? Yeah, what, what are the parameters of this? Is this like a, like a, a, like a like mass production art or is it like a unique art piece? Like if I could choose one, you know. It could be an know. alfresco. Like if you could just teleport a piece of art into your, into your, you know, into your house that you think you would want to be associated with you, you would want people to see if that would make a statement, I guess, about you. You know how I am with open-ended questions that are this broad. Oh, okay. <laughs> like, I, yeah, I, <laughs> hmm, is there any way I could, well, maybe we, maybe I can limit it, like, a classical piece, like something pre-Civil War. Pre-Civil War, okay. Yeah. I mean, look, I'm, I'm always, I mean, this is going to be kind of a, um, I don't know, like a cop-out answer, maybe, for some people are going to be like, oh, great, um. But I really like Van Gogh, Van Gogh, Van Gogh, Van Gogh, whatever, Van Gogh. It and, depends on uh, what language you're speaking, but yeah. I don't, I don't think I'm speaking any language right now. Um, mm -hmm. and, and growing up in the, in the house uh, where I grew up, in my mom's house, we had a really nice print of the sunflowers by Van Gogh in a nice frame. And I remember seeing it all the time growing up, um, you know, and... I think he, as an artist, speaks to me from the standpoint of just his story of someone who like struggled most of their life, never really saw the success that they wanted to see in life, um, but couldn't shake this uh, compulsion to create art. And I think for a lot of people who are artists, there is an element of, you know, maybe I don't want to do this, but I can't help myself from doing it. So that resonates with me. And I think the sunflowers... You know, my mom has always been, you know, uh, have this has this affinity for the sun in all its forms. So I think there'd be this other personal level there for me that I would think about about my mother every time I saw it. So I think those combination of factors means I, I, I'm going to go ahead and and go for Van Gogh's sunflowers here. What no, about that's, you? That is a really great answer. And I'm almost really glad for your answer because I think it contrasts dramatically with my own because the beautiful sunflowers and the way that uh, the colors that Van Gogh saw the world in were just so wonderful. And I think like it shows like a kind of an optimism, which, you know, doesn't always appear in every single piece of his, but those that, that and starry night, you know, his two of his most um, well-known pieces definitely had that, you know, kind of cheer, you know, some sort of cheerful, majestic wonder to them. I'm going to go with, what I think is my favorite art piece and one that it took me a while to truly appreciate in life. But um, to contrast yours, I'm going to go with Saturn Devouring His Son by Francisco Goya. Ah, okay. Okay. Hold but, on. I mean, this I'm one gonna... is... Mm -hmm. 
I'm going to Google this while you're talking about it. That, no, no, please do. It's it's one of my favorite images of all time. This uh, Goya made this uh, painting on his walls for himself. He didn't. I don't think he intended the the world to see it. He was just he was painting to express himself in a time of, I think it was a time of civil war. It was as though his entire world was collapsing around him. And I don't think he ever got a reprieve from that. I think he died in a time of war or uh, passed in a time of war. So he never saw like the peace again. Um, the way that he depicts Saturn, uh, you know, uh, in mid, I guess, mid uh, uh, consumption of a body, you know, uh, having eaten like one arm and the head and is working on another arm and as though, and, and with a look on his face and expression as though he's doing something shameful and you have just walked in and shined a light on this shame. It definitely reminds me of the look my cat gives me when uh, my older cat is eating our kittens' food. It kind of has a similar shame. Like, I, I know I'm doing something wrong. When your wrong. older cat is eating your kitten, and I was like, oh, God, <laughs> yeah, this is a little on the nose, Joel. Like, is yeah, this I know. Way of telling us something terrible is happening in your household? Possibly, but this is, it, I think it's just, a, it, this This piece is, I think, a warning. Like, I would definitely want, want to be, it's something I want to be reminded of daily that this is the madness that humans can, you know, humanity can fall into if it does, if it's, you know, doesn't commune with nature if it doesn't you know find peace it will you know lead to this like older generation just you know the the uh, an older generation destroying a younger generation for the sake of the older generation which is also just going to die eventually you know it's like we're supposed to pass on to the next generation so uh and and this and saturn devouring his children is uh like the ultimate uh, i think uh, representation of an uh, older generation trying to stay in power to the detriment of society. Well, yeah, I think that is a very salient uh, message, especially in, in this day and age where it feels a little bit like there's a imbalance in uh, the opportunities and uh, available resources uh, between generations and, you know, not, not making any sort of specific political commentary here, but I do, I do definitely see a reflection of, of, of this uh, piece in the world today. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, probably why it resonates so much with me. And funny, well, I don't know, like funny anecdote about this, but my mom does this, um, or at least she was for a while, she did this jewel art where it's like little beads, like almost bead-like things that are very shiny and shimmery. And you, you know, you, it's sort of like pointillism, but with like these little jewels. And she would do that to create like nice little landscapes, fall landscapes and things. And it gives you this uh, sense of being like 8-bit graphics. Like it has like, aside from the shininess to it, it has like that 8-bit like, you know, pixely graphic look. And I was, I mean, I, I think maybe I'll just try to convince her every Christmas, but I'm trying to convince her to do this piece uh, in that style so I can hang it in my house. <laughs> But I feel I, like your mom could not stomach sitting there and bejeweling this image. I know it would be it would be a sacrifice for her to do it for me, wouldn't it? <laughs> one day, one day, I hope that we are successful enough that someone sends you what you're asking for in the mail unsolicited. And, and then I <laughs> that yes, I I think I'll consider that a tier of success. If I if if uh, audience, if you would like to, if you are arts and craftsy, if you like to do your own interpretation of Saturn devouring his son, I will start collecting them. And anyone that's sent to me, as long as it's within, you know, within 
the realm of good taste for this art piece, I will display it in my home. I'll develop, I'll, I'll uh, dedicate a wall in every house I live in to display this art piece in its various forms. And if we raise $500 on Kickstarter, Joel will get this tattooed on his body, but in place of the sun, it will be a Subway sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I might agree to that. <laughs> I, I, $500, it, it, it's, guys. $500. It's just, it's just ironic enough and with within the realm of satire enough that I would... But I, I don't know if we will discuss how much money I'll do it for, but I have contemplated offering up my body for a tattoo for a high enough donation on Kickstarter. And if we can agree that, you know, Saturn devouring his son, but as Jared eating a Subway sandwich, I could go for that. You're going to get Jared uh, Fogel tattooed on your body now? <laughs> for $500? Not 500 We said we'd talk about Where's the price. My wallet? My wallet? Can I just pay you for that right now? <laughs> You also have to cover the expense of the tattoo, probably. But well, let's let's move on because we still have to figure out our uh, Kickstarter tier goals. And don't be surprised if some wild thing like me getting a tattoo is on there. But uh, tr uh, trust me, the price my price is going to go up. Um, trust but me, he's a tattoo virgin, so this is not like he's got a bunch of tattoos and he's adding one. This mm -hmm. man has no tattoos, so this would be yeah. the first tattoo. You know, yes, and to get a picture of Saturn devouring a Subway sandwich on his face for the low, low price. Of <laughs> I was imagining more of like running across my like ribs, like, you know, ribs down to my uh, hip. You keep saying that like it's just nothing to get your tattoos, <laughs> your ribs tattooed. Like, <laughs> Oh, no, I'm not saying I, I know it's going to hurt like hell, but I'd also like to put it up in a place that was both aesthetically pleasing and concealable by a shirt. I am also realizing that I like to go jogging without my shirt on, so I <laughs> I would probably be showing this tattoo off to the world. I want you to get uh, a, a McRib package tattooed on your ribs. I think that would be very, very classy. <laughs> can we do that? Can that happen? Is that we'll an option? Talk, like I said, we can talk prices later. Maybe, maybe I'm inspiring your something random for later in the episode, but why don't we jump into today's main topic? How about that? <laughs> okay, perfect, perfect. Let's do it. So, uh, yeah. So Danny, what did, uh, do you have any thoughts right now about the card templates? And, um, that was a, I mean, it was a journey we took together to get to where we are. Do you have any memories of the early templates that we used moving away from the, uh, black and white clip art version of the cards that we started out with? Yeah. I, I mean, I think that the early, the, the, the main thing that I would say characterized the early templates were they were a little chaotic in terms of um, there wasn't any consistency in my memory between like the size of text boxes or font sizes. Everything kind of felt like it was a little all over the place. Um, and it was exciting to see the, the like actual art or I shouldn't say the actual art, but rather like our first like art that was made specifically for these cards, even if it was just proxy art, and even if it was an early iteration of what is currently on the cards in terms of concept art. Concept art. Um, but there was definitely this period of time where I think we both were looking at like, oh, this is going to be a little more difficult than we initially thought. Um, I don't know. What was your your initial experience starting to put together these early templates one thing i do want to emphasize and something we find very important for uh our process is iterative design you know you do something that works well enough 
and then you try to make it better. And something I was trying to do very early on was really break the mold, I would say, of the traditional card templating. Uh, the, you know, and I, I think you, you are really good at, at this part of iterative design. I, I think I was presenting you uh, something very different, like, like almost like taking what might have been learned from games like uh, Magic the Gathering or Pokemon. And I was trying to throw away those things or trying to do something different. And I think you did a great job of slowly nudging me towards um, towards something that's a little more conventional. But I think through that process, we found something that was um, uh, different enough while also being same enough. So it has that classic uh, element of being novel, but familiar. So I'm looking at these early cards and something I am noticing and um, is that I put the basically there is no text box. It's like every card is full art at this point in our design process. Um, and the name of the card is at the top in its own box that is only as consistent as the length of the name of the card. Like any, any card that has too many characters in its name is, you know, the text box grows or the, the, the box for the name. And then the rules box is like, uh, what's the word opaque? Like it isn't a solid color so you can see the art coming through which i thought would be really neat but it also really makes it hard to read i'm looking at one of these early cards i have no idea you know it's like one of those like you you don't know what you're doing yeah i think i think what one of the things early on and 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 we were very inspired by trying to you know make the cards feel like they were jumping out of the pages of of an adventure magazine or the modern day equivalent which would be a graphic novel so I think some of those early style cues came from, you know, the idea of maybe doing some boxes that you might see in a graphic novel, those white boxes that have some description in them. Um, but ultimately, you know, and this is something that I think is an important lesson um, as you're embarking to design your, your first prototypes that you're going to bring out to the public. It, it, it you know, style is, is important. You want people to look at your product and say, oh, this is interesting. But if it's not functional, then they're not using it. They're not playing the game in a way that is easy. And you're, you're really putting yourself at a disadvantage. At the beginning of the, of, of the proto prototyping process, at the beginning of the playtesting process, you really need people to be clear on what the game is so you can understand whether or not the mechanics are working. Because fundamentally, your game is a set of mechanics, right? And then, you know, whatever the social aspect is that, you know, the interplay between people, et cetera, et cetera. But if people don't understand how to interpret your cards, you've got a big problem. And that doesn't go away through the final. So, you know, kind of like you were talking about, I mean, there is this sort of balancing act between how do we do something innovative? How do we do something that people are going to look at and be like, oh, that's a little different than anything I've seen before, while also maintaining the sort of cornerstones of, you know, uh, the language of putting, uh, you know, design language of, of, uh, of a playing card. Um, and the other thing I just wanted to say real quick, because I think you make a great point about iterative design, and hopefully we can have, we probably will do a whole uh, conversation episode on iterative design at some point. But one of the key uh, concepts that we, we used, which of course we borrowed from, you know, the tech world, um, and I'm sure this is not even where it originates, but is this idea of, of MVP, minimum viable product. So much you get in your own way because you're trying to make things perfect. And the reality is, 
your favorite things, the things that you think are most perfect in the world, they didn't come out of the, you know, the womb that way, so to speak. Generally speaking, they were iterated on and refined little by little until they gradually became something fantastic. So anytime, whether it's it's the prototype of the card, whether it's the art for the card, whether it's um, the marketing for the game, the website, whatever it is, one of the very first steps that we always take is defining minimum viable product. And we aim for that. And we say, we, that's what we need to get it out in the world. Once we achieve that, we're going to put it out in the world. And through this process, we'll make notes for what we want to do for successive upgrades or updates throughout um, throughout the, the, life stock, the life cycle of, of whatever it is that we're talking about. Oh, yeah. You need to get something out the door and something just posted so that you can even start revise, revising it and turning it into what you want it to be uh, at the end. You know, uh, I think in culture, we often think of the the stroke of genius coming to like an artist or a creator and all of a sudden, you know, it's like they had nothing and then all of a sudden they have everything and they have it perfectly planned out. Um, and, you know, it's al it always is like... It's always it always really is. I mean, I'm sure there's a few examples that really did happen that way here and there. But in reality, it is I have a vision of where I want to go to and I'm going to take small steps to get there. And I'm going to, you know, um, take this and revise and revise and revise until it actually looks like what we need it to, you know, the, it not only accomplishes what we need it to do, but also it looks good doing it. And uh, you mentioned the tech world. I, I personally pull my my love for iterative design. Oh, um, comes well at least what when I heard about it first or most consistently was Nintendo, which is probably my favorite video game maker. Uh, well, at least like they have they have their uh, controversies just like any other company. But when it comes to their like process, whoever, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, nothing as bad as subway. I mean, Nintendo definitely has like, you know, their demons in their closet, but that mostly revolves around like, you know, not, not being able to stream their games well and lawsuits and things like that for, you know, copyright infringements that are, you know, anyways, we don't have to get into that. We can have an entire episode about like the sins of the, our favorite companies, you know, just like Apple, just like Windows, just like, you know, uh, um, almost any company under the sun that's existed for more than like five years, they're going to have some baggage that go along with it. I can't wait for us to get our own baggage. I don't know. Um, I can wait. I can wait. I think <laughs> I can wait on that one. But to come back to the card templates, you know, uh, one of the things that looking through, because I, I, I went into a folder that I think was the like where I put all the tests along mm -hmm. the way. Like, so I'm like rapid fire going through the templates. And um, the thing that really, I think that I was able to latch onto and start building the cards around that came way earlier than I expected was what we call the, the I guess the information stamp that has uh, the type of action X card it is, whether it's a feat, a site or a relic and what lead identity it is associated with, rune, glyph, uh, vision, or myth. And I remember us having a conversation about wanting to get some like graphic design element that was like comic book inspired. And I remember us looking together at a cover of like a Green Arrow comic or something like that. And mm -hmm. um, I just remember, uh, basically, you know, I'm sure it's changed since then, but I almost took just beat by beat, like, okay, there's like this, 
you know, there's this symbol at the top, and then it's like this like wide uh, or a tall rectangle, and there's like you know three la- like three layers of information on that rectangle. So I just almost curbed it completely from that comic book cover, and I'm sure I'm not the first to do something like that. And that I think that started to anchor. Like if I'm looking through these, like anything before we did that, I don't feel like had a real anchor or consistency on on it like it they were all struggling for like an identity and i think that stamp really brought the identity to our cards so much so that we started putting the stamp on also the lead cards in the game um yep but there there was another major milestone that i remember and if i'm jumping ahead here you know by all means stop, stop me but um and as we talk a little bit more about the art process um you know, we'll maybe we'll we'll discuss this in, in from a different angle. But around this time, you know, I was generating the 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 initial concept art for the cards, and what we were finding was, you know, there were some really great pieces that I was generating, um, and really great is relative. But you know, <laughs> as to what we had mm-hmm. previously, I mean, the the really early stuff that we had generated was freaky to say the least. Um, and I, you know, I'd send it to you, but the problem was there, you know, the art was, you know, the focal was, you know, up top on one piece and to the right on another and the bottom. And it, it was making it very difficult for the cards to have any sort of consistency because, you know, you would have to kind of move the art around and then maybe you wouldn't have the right space, you know, left over. And then we'd have to figure out, can we extend the art? There are all kinds of things. And so, you know, we sat down, we had a serious conversation and said, hey, look, we need to take this from two different perspectives. One, I think you need to create a wireframe. We didn't use that term yet. That's something that LD provided. Uh, so I'm sure you knew about it. I, I wasn't aware of it, but we said, okay, this real estate is where the art's gonna live. This real estate is where the name of the card's gonna be. Here's where the stamp's gonna be. And here's the text real estate. And everything is going to fit into those parameters moving forward. And I think that's where that final layer of all the cards look the same in your hand, you know, so to speak, came into play. And it was sort of this, you know, I think that a lot of people out there who have either a design background or have done a lot more, you know, like a graphic design background or have done a lot more game design than us or whatever are going to kind of be like, duh, guys, like, why did you guys have to reinvent the wheel here? Like, this is very standard practice, you know, but we all have our blind spots, right? So, um, you know, and, and sometimes the way you and I work is unconventional, but I think that the upside of that is we really get to understand why certain things work under the hood the way they do in a way that if you're just looking up something online and you read on a blog that this is how you're supposed to do it, you may not fully appreciate the rationale behind it. And I would say, I mean, I think I definitely came to to the table trying to reinvent the wheel. You know, um, we we have referred to the fact that we are big fans of Magic the Gathering. So I didn't want to just seem like I was trying to make a Magic the Gathering card in the template of this. And so I think by going so out of left field and slowly, more slowly bringing it towards what was conventional in terms of layout, it allowed us to get, you know, find the places where we can be unconventional, but still, you know, consistent, which I think is important. Like in our, our cards, the, the, in the final product, the, the title is like right uh, of the card is right above the rules box instead of at the top of the card, which allows for the artwork to extend from like nearly the top of the card, like the, the, from like one border down. 
And so it, it really puts the artwork front and center. And like the first thing you really observe before you like start reading things like you, it's art first. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I just pause here to give you a compliment. You know, I think that, you know, you know, we've been friends for a long time. And mm -hmm. I think that one of the things that I've always admired and appreciated about you and, and, and valued, and in fact, it's, you know, one of the primary reasons why I'm always so eager to partner with you on things is more so than anyone I've ever met in my life, you have a sort of an alien perspective about things. I mean, most people kind of have an opinion or a way of thinking about something that is predictably inside of a box and then maybe it's a little bit more to one side or the other and then sometimes they're outside the box but more often than anyone i've ever interacted with have you provided me with you know a perspective that is so different than how i would think about something that you know and, and not only just different but actually something that is to me interesting and worth exploring and being like oh i would have never thought about it that way um and, and that's extremely valuable in a, a creative partnership is, you know, you do want to have enough uh, in common that you guys can actually, you know, come to a consensus on things and work together and actually produce things. But ultimately, you also want to have enough creative difference and perspective on life that's different to, you know, to encounter interesting ideas and to play off of each other. And you just don't get that if, if two people are coming from a very similar mindset. So... I think of it as one of your superpowers and um, you know, I hope that over time the audience really gets to see, you know, some of your more out there takes. Um, and, and I'm sure I can facilitate that in some way, but <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you will. And thank you so much for, for saying that. And I, I have always, it, it's like, I have everything. I often feel like I have everything you need to be a prolific and, you know, like almost uh sage like poster in this internet day except for i have almost zero desire to post my thoughts you know i have to like really wrangle myself to like compose a, a you know a post on on uh you know facebook or instagram these days uh because i just you know for me they're just my thoughts i just like you know what i don't put as much stock in them but then when i do tend to share them they tend to resonate or you know uh illuminate so yeah, thank you for thank you for saying that. And I did want to get back to the card, though. Uh, one, I think I think just to wrap up the templating situ uh, issue or not issue, but the templating story and journey that we took on templating. So at some point in the process, we decided that we wanted the leads to have artwork associated with them, like you know, to to just be more than just the lead symbol, which is what I think we had for a long time. And you use Midjourney, and we're about to get into the Midjourney discussion. But you use Midjourney to, uh, to like sort of generate like these texture, like you know, something a little more than textures, but less than you know, uh, like characters or anything like that, or you know, actual scenes, and you know, like rocks, like almost stacked rocks for ruins, and like you know, cryptic, like hieroglyphics for uh, glyph, um, like a shining ray of sun for. Uh, vision and a like a ma an intricate maze for myth uh in each of those having colors associated with them and i uh for a long time i had just randomly grabbed like borders for our cards that were like you know they weren't my favorite it was like you know sand or clouds things like that and then when you had made those uh, i knew pretty early on after you had made those for uh for us 
that I wanted to make those the borders of the uh, Action X cards. Uh, but it definitely took some time because I knew it was going to be a huge undertaking. But sometimes you really do need to do those undertakings because it let me, like, changing out those borders made me have to kind of build the cards again from scratch. And that made it to where I got to make sure there was consistency throughout every card that might have been lacking before the text. I think all the rules boxes for all the text of the cards are all equal height now. And almost every font in the game is like the same. Um, but, and finally, and truly finally, speaking of fonts, I think that was a big thing that brought all the cards together is we decided uh, at some point that each lead identity would have its own font associated with it. And once we found all four fonts for each lead identity, um, I think it made the cards... Um, it's that sort of like thematic through line that brought everything together. So, you know, you, you don't want to go too crazy on fonts. You need them to be readable, but uh, let some character come through them. There's a lot of different ways to tell your story. And, and you alluded to some of them. I mean, whether it's the borders, whether it's the fonts, one of the things that has been a guiding principle from us, for us from the beginning was, you know, how do we, how do we, you know, tell the story we want to, what are all the different, um, you know, uh, avenues that we have to convey flavor um, and nuance to the audience. And, you know, that's something that's very important to us because at the end of the day, we don't want this just to be a game that you're playing and having fun. We want this to feel like the act of playing a game and having fun is also the act of playing through a story where you're the protagonist and you actually feel some amount of, you know, I'm experiencing the tropes and excitement of my favorite genre, you know, in this case, an action adventure, you know, in Indiana Jones inspired, you know, world of treasure seeking um, in a future set, you know, maybe you're on the high seas hunting monsters or, you know, fill in the blank, right? There's lots yeah. and lots of where places we where we're planning to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we definitely have a few loaded up. In fact, we were talking about uh, the theme for a set that at earliest would be like delivered in 2020. What did we say? 2026 was probably the earliest it would be delivered. So yeah, don't worry. We, we definitely like be on the lookout. We have years of content to come if we, uh, when we get this up and running. Um, and also I just to go back to something you said that I love, it's like you are, there is no avatar in this game. You're not playing. You're not like stepping into the shoes of somebody else. You are you in the game. You are the player. You are the character. So, you know, if you want some a DLC hat, put on a hat. You know, you want your character to be dressed up in a suit, come to, the, come to a tournament dressed in a suit. You are the avatar. Absolutely. I mean, we, we want players to have their own adventurer identity. And I mean, once we get organized play up and going, I think having, you know, pseudonyms and, and, and doing some amount of cosplay is something that we're going to celebrate and support. You know, yeah. we want people to really feel like they are who they want to be when they're playing this game. Yeah. I would say that if um, the true greatest player of X Seekers of Fortune ever would be not only one who could win the tournament on in, you know, playing the game, but also wins the costume contest or the, the cosplay contest that we would hold afterwards during the award ceremony uh, stretch of it. If you, if you can be that sort of double threat, you will truly be the, the uh, true fortune seeker. Yes, the only person that would upstage them is the person who steals the prize without winning the tournament. 
Yes. Well, we'll we'll have we'll talk about our super secret plans, you know, later. But why don't we go okay. ahead and talk about the other side of the art, uh, the art of the cards? We have we've talked about the templating, everything that goes around it. But really, the thing that sells the flavor of the game and tells the story of the game is the art that is in the middle of it. And this is where you did the heavy lifting during the prototype development process, or at the very least, you took this on your plate using Mid Journey to create art pieces that were good enough to, to, to tell the story and to live up to the standards of uh, TCG players who have been, if, if TCG players are spoiled for anything, it is a plethora of beautiful art that they could have at their fingertips and you know buy on cardboard. So what was that journey like? And tell us what it's like to work with Mid Journey. I've been fascinated with AI for a really long time. Um, you know, and I've been kind of quietly watching the developments, waiting for something that I felt like was actually usable tools. And it wasn't really until ChatGPT and MidJourney had um, come out that I felt like um, the tools were enticing enough for me to really spend time with. Um, previously, you know, I had, I had toyed around with like Replica and, um, you know, I've dabbled with other other AI things, but none of them had really made me feel like they were ready for prime time until uh, really started encountering mid-journey. And, and it's funny because the very early stuff that we were getting out of, I don't even know when the first versions I was using were, it was probably V2 or something like that. Um, I mean, the art that I was getting out of it, I was super impressed by and looking back at it now, it's kind of like, you know, it's like when you watch the special effects in an old movie, you're like, how did we think that was good? Um, you know, but it was just so novel that you could type in words and that the computer would imagine that this intelligence would imagine something that even remotely resembled what you were trying to get it to imagine. Um, and then through successive, um, you know, iterations, you know, the power of mid-journey has only accelerated. I mean, version five is extremely powerful tool. Version four was already a very powerful tool and can only imagine what's coming around the bend. Um, you know, the big leveling up as it comes to mid-journey is really understanding prompting. And I'm going to just say this to everyone right now. If you're, you know, alive in the world today, I think that it's going to really be important to master prompt crafting. Um, whether it be for ChatGPT or for MidJourney um, or any other AI application that comes down the line. I think it's one of those things that seems very esoteric to people who aren't doing it. You know, just like in the early days that even using a computer made you seem like you were some sort of like, I don't know, like a genius. But the reality is it was it's it, things are tend to seem more complicated than they really are. And I think most people, if they jumped in and started trying to prompt on these things, once they, you know, took a few minutes to understand how these things worked, they'd find that it was really pretty straightforward. Um, and I think it's super important for us to, you know, embrace these technologies as, as, as they come along, because maybe they're a flash in the pan, maybe they're uh, something that's defining the next, you know, so many decades of, of how we work. And so you don't want to be behind the eight ball. I mean, we've, we've all encountered people who maybe didn't take learning how to use a computer as seriously as they should have. And now they seem like they're really struggling and behind. And, you know, you know, I don't mm -hmm. necessarily like that, but yeah. ultimately it's a reality and, and we all have to make use of the tools that everyone else is using in society. If we, you know, plan to, to be relevant to 
um, you know, the workforce. I mean, again, everyone can find their own way, but if you want to increase your opportunities, it's it's a smart thing to do, and it's not that difficult. I would I would say, um, you know, there have been flash in the pan technologies, but I do feel like almost every single one of them, even if they were a flash in the pan, probably let you know were iterated upon and were maybe usurped by something else that still used you know the underlying algorithms underlying you know uh workflows uh so i might my, my, i guess I, what i would add to that is you know definitely take this the soft skill approach like you know learn learn how to th- think how to utilize these technologies because if something else comes along you'll still have the way uh, you know the the method methodology of thinking in the ways that the technology needs you to um you you know you you could have been a windows 95 power user and understood how windows 95 worked in and out but eventually vista is going to come along eventually windows 10 is going to come along eventually your entire company might have to switch over to mac uh, uh, or to apple and do use the um macintosh os instead of the windows os but if you understand how file trees work, if you understand how to navigate a program or how to identify how to navigate a program, no matter what OS you're in, you know, that those are the things that will allow you to adapt. Yeah, adaptability is key. And um, I think, like you said, you know, identify what core skills are likely going to make you most adaptable and and definitely invest the time in learning those. Mm-hmm. Um, Talking more specifically about art generation, um, yeah. one thing you said here before I, I guess before I jump too deep into the technical there is, when you're talking about TCG, specifically magic, I mean, for a lot of people, the art is just as much a part of what they love about the game as the game. Mm-hmm. And you know, for, for me, I did not want to make a game that I felt like the art did not excite people that they weren't, you know, wanting to see that art on a, on a play mat, or they didn't want to potentially have a print of it in their house, or that they didn't identify with it. It didn't make them feel something. If, yeah. if art, art doesn't make you feel something, if you don't get lost in the world, like feel like you're looking into a window into this imaginary world that you want to exist in, we haven't done our job. So that was something that, you know, I've taken very seriously. And, and as we're starting to work with artists now to commission the pieces that will actually be on the cards, um, you know, that's something that I think we, we both have a lot of trepidation about is, you know, yes, we want to see real art on these cards and we have an amazing artist um, or artist working on this. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, are we going to be able to really feel like we're giving you that window into the world that we want to? Yeah. And that's where like a new set of skills is going to come across for us. I mean, and we, we can talk about that in future episodes as we start to tackle it. But, you know, prompt and now we've learned you learned how to prompt AI. And I saw like I saw how frustrating that could be. I should say from my perspective, I wasn't with you every single time you made an art piece. But there was a few times that you would call me up and just talk through like while we were on the phone, talk through trying to get wrangle good art. And so many times you would give a prompt and then the uh, the art that you got back was so, so bizarre and so off point that you did not even want to share it with me. Um, and, you know, I would be there with you for two, you know, upwards of two hours just before you even started to get into the realm of like, okay, this is good enough for us to talk about and start making notes in order to morph it into what we want it to be. And, you know, I would, you know, I would be at home, you know, uh, 
either working on my templates while you were doing that, or I would just be like doing dishes and other chores while you were doing that uh, on the phone with you. And I just remember thinking, man, this is taking a while. And the the thought process that you would have to go through, it was sometimes, I th- you know, it was just like you weren't even talking to me. You were just talking out loud, trying to figure out what to do. But I was just going to end this part of the conversation today talking about the mid-journey journey uh, by asking you, and I think I know your answer, what was the hardest art to get mid-journey to produce? You, yeah, you, you know. I mean, it shouldn't be, but for whatever reason, mid-journey doesn't seem to understand what a pickaxe is. And <laughs> for whatever reason, you know, I mean, we decided we were going to have one of our, our key cards and one of the most exciting cards and one of the most fun cards be excavators pickaxe uh, mm-hmm. and we knew we needed awesome art for it and for whatever reason midjourney almost refuses to acknowledge that pickaxes exist and yes. so that definitely took a lot of wrangling to get it i mean uh-huh. so part of it is prompting right but then you've got some other tools at your your disposal so you can um upload images to midjourney to give its cues as to what you're looking for but a lot of times it'll take ideas from that art that you don't want it to. So it's not just as easy as being like, okay, here's an art, I'm gonna upload it, and now you're gonna produce something that's exactly what I want. Um, honestly, for Excavator's Pickaxe, I had to do that, and then I had to take what it outputted, and then I had to Photoshop what it outputted with other stuff that it outputted, and create maybe like two or three successive iterations of like a Photoshopped image to create a new reference image, to send it in to start getting out stuff that resembled what I wanted to see. So it. You know, there's, and again, I'm sure there are better ways to do this. I mean, I'm definitely, you know, like like we said earlier on, a lot of times, you know, you know, you might look at a blog and be like, oh, okay, this is how you do it, da 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 da. That was easy. A lot of times, Joel and I are are definitely out there, you know, trying to figure it out ourselves, and 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 it takes us longer, and it's meandering, and it's janky. But at the end of the day, we understand some of the elements better than we would have otherwise. The other thing I want to say is the most frustrating thing about Midjourney isn't really the when it gets it wildly wrong. It's when it gets it exactly right, say for an extra couple of fingers or some other detail that you're just like, why? And look, digital art is a thing. You know, you can go in there, you can, you know, work it out, whatever. And and we did a number of times. But when you get that close and there's just something off where you're like, maybe we can fix that, but the amount of time it's gonna take, is it really worth it? It can be really, really frustrating. You're like, so close to having amazing art. So close, yes. yet yes. so far. It's like, so, oh, that piece looks great, except for the the woman's eyes are cross-eyed, you know? They're cross-eyed or yeah. she's got 15 Like you said, the, yeah, the, the amount of fingers. And that's that's definitely been improved with the most recent version of Midjourney, but I definitely, one of the early pieces that you tried making uh, it was for our card Diggers Dugout, which is supposed to be a bar in universe that all the characters are, you know, go to and meet up at, you know, sort of the watering hole for all the adventurers. And you were trying to uh, convey that with the, a friendly barkeep, you know, like an old timey friendly barkeep, you know, and a little t- uh, like Tilby hat, you know, um, and you, you would send me art and it's like, yeah, his face looks great. He like has a good disposition. And then he's just laying his hand on the table in front of him and it has a dozen fingers on it. <laughs> yeah. He had like some Eldrazi hands, you know? Yes. 
Yeah. I also, uh, I think a funny story that, or, or a funny little, like, you know, the, uh, I, we should say for the audience, you are a father. I am not. I am a single male man. Uh, I live with my girlfriend, but uh, as of right now, I don't have any children. And I tried to excuse Midjourney's uh, issue with the pickaxe by saying, well, are pickaxes really that relevant? Maybe it's just like it hasn't doesn't have that much, you know, reference for pickaxes because like they're not really talked about much these days. And then you reminded me, no, a pickaxe like your son could draw a pickaxe from memory because Minecraft has made the pickaxe a, a household, you know, item that you would know about and an icon of an entire game. Yeah, 100%. I mean, there's really no excuse for Midjourney not understanding what a pickaxe is other than I don't know. I mean, I think it's just one of those ways that, you know, like I secretly think that the AI has been here for a while and is just trolling all of us in subtle, subtle ways. Oh. And I think this is one of those ways. Well, uh, when a troll trolls a troll, right? Yeah, talk to my kids, dude. <laughs> all right. Yeah. Well, we we definitely should have them on sometime. I mean, we definitely could use some guests. Um, yeah, maybe. I mean, certainly Oliver. Oliver would be yeah. into it. But I think so. Sebastian, I don't think so. <laughs> I'm sure Oliver would spend the entire episode just trying to make me go slightly insane. Um, so yeah. that's, you know, that kind of covers at least the overview for card templating and mid-journey art uh, production, which we could spend an entire episode on each of those topics, like really pulling them apart. But we do like to do these. We like to start with these overviews, especially because this was all to tell the origin story of how the game came from. Uh, idea to Comic Palooza, you know, with working prototypes that we were displaying for people. So, in doing this, getting the card templated and getting the art on the cards, all, all the Action X cards, we were able to then, uh, and all the you know things that we learned along the way, we were able to go to Office Max and have them print out, you know, set up the cards to be printed on sheets and cut up those sheets, and then we made a template or not templates prototypes. Uh, utilizing the just the methods of making proxy cards for any other TCG game. We put a regular magic card uh, in a sleeve, and then we took the art that we printed out and cut down and just put it over the magic card. And with that prototype, uh, we actually, after we made it, we went to a local LCG in your area called The Adventure Begins, T-A-B, I believe, T-A-B. Tab. Yeah. yeah. And uh, we just went and with our game in hand played played at one of their tables and soon enough some folks came in who were you know getting ready to play i think it was digimon that night was the card game of choice but uh you know they started rolling in and you know they didn't have anybody else to play against because they were the first few there and we just sort of summoned somebody over uh do you remember his name at all yeah i believe his name was justin and he was a flesh and blood player and i owe justin a, a call or a text um he was uh, super generous with his time and uh, definitely wanted to keep up with the game. So I should reach out to him and invite him out here one of these days soon. Um, oh, yeah, especially because like now Justin could jump online and sign up for our beta and get an invite directly into it as well as an invite to our Discord server, which you could do at home as well. So go to megamothstudios.com, click on the X Seekers of Fortune tab and put in your email address and you'll be onboarded really fast. But... Uh, do you so? What was? Do you remember that experience of of playing with a a new person for the first time? Because you actually were the one who played against Justin. I sort of stood back and coached him a bit and talked to some of the other players at the store. 
Um, how did it feel just knowing like this is something we were create we've created and now I'm sitting across from a kid teaching him how to play the game? I mean, honestly, it felt like the moment of truth, right? Like uh, we've been spent at that point, we had spent, you know, I don't know, six months or whatever it was building this game. You know, we had play tested online with people, but, you know, there's always that that lingering doubt in your mind that the people who know you are going to, you know, lead you on a little bit about how good what you're doing is because they don't want to hurt your feelings. And we always knew that, you know, the real moment of truth was showing up to the LGS, showing it to uh, enfranchised uh, TCG players and seeing whether or not they responded to it the way that we thought they might. And when they started playing and when we started to realize, you know, how Justin felt about the game as he was playing it, when you could tell that he was actually into it, when we started getting a few people walking over to watch the game and asking questions, we kind of knew that we did it. And we didn't really get that full, full, full-throated, yes, you did, until we went to Comic Palooza and did it 25 times and saw the reaction and had people, you know, saying that they found the game to be addicting or that they wanted to buy it on the spot. It wasn't until then that I really knew that, yes, the game had, we, land, we stuck the landing, but that moment at... TAB with Justin was that first glimmer that, hey, maybe we did cross the finish line the way we wanted to. Definitely. At the very least, we knew that we had hit a milestone in our journey to uh, towards getting, you know, having a game that people wanted to play. And while you were playing with Justin, I was fielding questions from uh, different players, you know, overlooking this new, you know, this new shiny object that was in their store. Uh, unfortunately we could only play the one game with Justin. I think we had a dinner to get to that was like already on the books. Uh, but we, I do recall like standing there with a flesh and blood player, a magic player and a Digimon player and sort of going over some of the high level ideas of the game and, you know, just them sticking around and having questions for me. And I knew like, okay, these people are, we got their interest. If we have their interest, we have, we have a pathway in. Um, and they, and they liked our answers for the, like, for the most part, we talked, talked to them about like how we were, pl- the quality we were trying to get from the, the card printing, uh, and everything like that. And, you know, they were, they were very positive towards it. Um, the idea of it being a one stop, uh, or a one box purchase that you get the entire game. And it started making me think, and this might be, you know, this is, this is for marketing later. And I'm just, this is hopeful, like. Um, wish fulfillment, but it got me thinking if we could be the game that these guys play, you know, intermingling, if the Digimon player and the flesh and blood player can't, you know, they don't want to learn each other's games because there's so much collecting and so many deep, deep rules and meta to keep up with. But what if we were the game that it's like the Digimon player and the flesh and blood player could agree to play together because it has the same feeling as a TCG, but it doesn't have the same upkeep that you have to do to be, uh, you know, competitive with a, with a TCG. So that, that sort of inspired like where I thought we could fit into the market and where I hope we do fit into the market moving forward. Um, did you have any other thoughts on that before we move on? No, no, I think that was a good discussion. I think there are other things we can talk about at a later date. Um, well, with that, I will say that uh, just to give you all guys a taste, that pretty much concludes 
the origin story of X Seekers of Fortune. This has been a three-part series to get here, but from this point on, it was basically what we covered in episode one, getting ready for Comic Palooza. Because after we had that prototype and we knew that we had something that we were confident showing off, when LD came back to us and said, Hey guys, do y'all want to do Comic Palooza? You know, I could get you in. We we were like, we yeah, we have to. I I at least I was like, yes, this is if we we need to start doing these sorts of conventions and why not start with comic palooza we have we have everything going for us uh, uh for that specific one so if you want to if you want to co- you know ra- go around the circle and you know refresh yourself as to how this all started or how uh, you know that story that would just be episode 1 of the podcast we recorded that fresh off of comic palooza which was over a month ago at this point um but yeah you know so go back listen to that if you have any questions or comments about that one please like you know leave them below and next week we're going to be going into our fifth episode of the podcast so that'll be month this first episode of month two of the podcast and the teaser just to give you a little uh preview as to what we're going to be covering i believe we're going to be covering pitching and teaching a game you know winning folks over with simplicity and keeping them engaged with complexity um so we'll talk about what we've learned in in teaching the game ourselves what you know, what we've learned from other people and uh, hopefully what you, you know, maybe even teach you how to play X Seekers of Fortune in that episode. Nice, nice. Well, I did want to just say something here. So yesterday we were talking and we had a conversation and you mentioned to me how much you love guessing games. And so I thought maybe we could play some guessing games. Oh my goodness. Yeah, yeah. I love guessing games, especially with little context and, you know, yeah, okay, let's see. Let's see how this goes. All right, so we've got some ASMR going on right now. Do you know what it is? I'm not hearing anything. <laughs> really? All right, well, what you should be hearing, and hopefully the people at home are hearing, uh, is the sound of shuffling cards that are saved. Oh, okay. Because this is a little primer for our guessing game. I have randomized in front of me a selection of Action X cards. Okay. And I'm going to draw one. And you get to ask me three yes or no questions. And okay. we will see whether or not you can guess the card. And All right. whether or not three questions is enough. So okay. you're ready for Let's number see. one? Actually, though, this actually sounds like a fun game. There's parameters. Okay. okay. Are you, yeah, I am ready. Are you, are you uh, looking at it now? Yes, I have one. Go for it. Okay. Question number one. What do you have? Is this card a feat? It is not a feat. Hmm. It is not a feat. <laughs> yes or no questions are pretty darn tough here. Um, is this card... Does this card have... Does the word caution appear on the card? It does not. Does the card ha- depict hands? Questionably. Did you say questionably? <laughs> yeah, I, well, I'll get, let, let me give you another guess because this is one of those places where Mid Journey gets weird and it's like, is that a hand? That's even weirder to hear. <laughs> okay, I well. Too much about it. I think I it's supposed would, to be a hand, but it's a weird looking one. Is the card the Thirsting Stone? It is not. Damn. It is. Okay. But you still Should have I keep guess. guessing? Oh, I oh I get what three questions, three uh, two guesses or something. Yeah, we'll call this one a warm up. Okay. Right. 
Do you have a second yeah. guess? I'm going to reveal it. You get one more guess, and I'll reveal it. Okay, I'm kind of like trying to refresh my brain as to like what it could be. Uh, that's such a weird thing for you to say that it might have hands on it. Is is that a hand? Um, depicted. It wasn't a feet, and I assume I presume it's not a sight, so it has to be a relic, and a relic that has maybe hands. That's a that's a tough one. Um, I'm just going to go. I'm going to take a, a far flung guess and say merchant scale incorrect it is a green-eyed totem green that's a hand <laughs> well it doesn't look very nice it doesn't look nice but it's meant to be a hand i, I would i would have definitely said that is a hand yes all right so green-eyed totem and i'm and, and and part of the reason why i wanted to play this game too is i wanted to find a way to start introducing action x cards to the to the uh, audience at home so i'm gonna go ahead and read it before we move on so green-eyed totem is a relic it is a rune lead identity relic, and it is um, comes in with the classic choice that almost every relic in the game has. So you have to choose a mode, and you can choose to either play this relic nobly or ruthlessly. If you choose to play it nobly, whenever a rival completes a map, draw two leads. That's two leads for them completing a map. So every time they draw complete a map, you're drawing two leads. Trust me, that feels very nice. Um, and then the other one is also uh, very, very nice. The Ruthless, if you are a Ruthless player, which I know some of you are, um, whenever you complete a map, pick a lead at random from a rival's hand and put it into your own. So it, it, it actually says, whenever you complete a map, pick a lead in a rival's hand at random and put it into your hand. So you are making them discard a card, basically, and you're gaining a card. So, I mean... Very nice, very powerful card, um, which is a reoccurring theme in X Seekers of Fortune. Almost every Action X card you see is quite powerful. So, you ready for number two? We're going to do three of these total. Okay, yes, I am. And okay. uh, sorry, I'm just seeing that Annie, our social media guru, just sent us a message. So, we'll get to that once we get done with this. But, all right, is same parameters? Three, same parameters. three questions? Okay. Three questions, well, yes or no? I think. I think my first question is always going to be, is this card a feat? Uh, it is. Does this card feature somebody, like, does it depict, does the art of this card depict somebody is, like, from behind looking onto a scene? It does not. Okay. You'd be surprised. Like, that wasn't that, like, one of Midjourney's, like, favorite things to depict? It was, like, you know, uh, the perspective uh, yeah, the of looking at... Yeah, the ritual cycle gets completely counted out. Actually, is a person depicted on the card I should have probably started with? No, not really. A <laughs> uh, person's not depicted on a feet card. That actually kind of limits it down. I'm trying to think. Well, not just think. I I must admit, I'm scrolling through my, my cards here. Yeah, yeah. Because, uh, like, almost every... I thought almost every feet had a person on this it. This is a very borderline answer. This is this falls into the does it have hands category. Okay. So well, I yes, have like I, I I think we could rephrase that question and get a slightly different answer. There's uh, not a person on it. Okay, I'm gonna say make off with. It's the monkey. It is make off with, which yes. is one of our favorite cards. Sorry guys, trying to find a way to let you see this without glare. I'm sure that uh, William, our, our intrepid producer, will 
in the frame. But Make Off With is a, a feat uh, featuring Oko, uh, who is uh, this uh, marauding monkey over here. And he is uh, a rune identity feat, or at least Make Off With is. And uh, as with most of the feats, they come with a choice. Not all, but most of these do, because who doesn't like choices? And that's where player agency and uh, depth and complexity come in. So you can choose a relic or a map arrival controls and gain control of it. If you gain a relic, choose the relics mode. So that is uh, quite good. Although reading it now, I'm, I'm already seeing something that we might need to correct about it. <laughs> we'll talk about that later. And then it also has, most of these uh, actually have this cool little thing where, like we said, we want to give you choices. Most of these have like a unique ability paired with what we call the heroic feats. So the option to do a heroic feat at a discount. Normally to do a heroic feat, there's some sort of additional resource costs, whether it be discarding leads or scrapping a map or um, archiving a active adventure. Technically that's also scrapping, but you end up archiving it, whatever. Um, but this one also has sabotage and sabotage basically says any active resource which is anything in your active zone so it could be a site a relic or a map um this can get rid of it so another quite good card all right last one you ready i hope so yeah let's go Ooh, that's a good one <laughs> all right well i'm going to start because this kind of is like the 50 50 like it, it cuts out 50 percent of the cards is it a feat it is Okay. Uh, well, I think I'm going to go with that uh, second question. I think Oko was the only exception to that, so I'm going to ask the second question, which is: Do does the feet, does the artwork depict the back? You know, somebody from you know looking at somebody from the back and seeing the the scenery that they're looking upon. No, it does not. Okay, that cuts out you know at least five cards, I think. Um, does the artwork depict a single person in frame? It does. I'm going to go with, I'm going to, I'm going to go with burn the records. It is burn the records. Yes. All right. Nice. I had a feeling because we've been talking about this guy for a while now. Now on burn the records, we have this metal faced man or, or a man in a metal mask, like looking over documents that are burning in his hands. And, um, you know, we were talking about this as like being the lead villain of our, our, uh, of our story. Uh, do you want to tell us your thoughts on the broker? Yeah, absolutely. So we will get into the broker's story a little bit more as we, uh, put out some of the, uh, supplemental narrative, uh, content that, that, uh, accompanies, uh, the, uh, the game. But for now, what you need to know about the card burden, the records is that it features the broker. It is a feat. It is a glyph uh, lead identity feat. And it says, choose a rival. They choose two leads and bury them. And so what bury means in the context of X Seekers of Fortune is rather than discarding a card and putting it in the discard pile, um, because in our game, you can reclaim resources from the discard pile if they're on the top of the discard pile in most cases. Um, these actually are put on the bottom of the deck that um, they correspond to. There are three decks. 
um, and these would be returned to the bottom of the lead deck. So trust me, at any point in the game, you do not want to have Burn the Records uh, played against you. Losing two leads usually doesn't feel great, and especially doesn't feel great if you're in the final quest. So I would highly recommend uh, saving this one for a strategic moment and praying that it is not played against you. So yeah, that's and the something that <laughs> and something that you've always pointed out that we might as well let our audience in on. You know, the the sec one of the secrets about this card is it's essentially unthortable. If your opponent or your rival thwarts burn the records, all that means is that they discard you know they buried two leads they just happen to choose two matching leads and give up a thwart for it so you know that's one of the beauties of this card is it kind of no matter what your rival tries to do it has its effect absolutely and and that's one of the things that i love about the game so much is that a lot of these cards do more than they say they do and part of what is very very fun about the game is learning the secret text of all of the cards what, what this ability allows you to do that isn't printed on the card in terms of gaining information, in terms of forcing certain situations to transpire for your opponent. And again, as Joel pointed out, the secret text on Burn the Records is one way or the other, you're discarding two leads. Uh, I guess unless you are going to thwart it with something that has thwart printed on it. Yeah, but... I mean, okay, I guess that is the one way that you could get away from it. But even then, then you're still you know, you're still getting rid of a, a really powerful Thwart uh, card from your hands, which often you kind of want to use those for their actual abilities. So, and I think we'll get more into. I'm sure we'll talk more about like you know putting those special player or the uh, heroic feats on the cards here soon, and and what that kind of how that kind of uh, changes the math of the game in some ways. Um, well, I, with that, was would you say that was all of your something random for this week? I think that was random enough, don't you? I think so. Yeah, well, very random. I mean, you know, you, you drew random cards from a deck and had me guess them. I think that's as random, almost as random as you can get. Trust me, well, I'll come up with better guessing games, ones that are perhaps more painful <laughs> in the future. Yeah, I mean, if you really want to get my the best, uh, the best faces for the thumbnails for our podcast. If you want to get me really look like I'm having an aneurysm, I'm sure you, you can take it even further than that. And I, I almost challenge you kill me, please. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to take you up on that. I've got a lot of things that I need you to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When you're ready, when you're ready. All right, folks. Well, why don't we go ahead and wrap up this episode Fortune Seekers, thank you so much for joining us. Now, if you really want to get to the bottom of your fortunes, please follow us on social media. You can find us on TikTok at Megamoth Studios. You can find us on Instagram at X Seekers of Fortune and on Facebook at uh, X Seekers of Fortune as well there. Any final thoughts before we kick this out? Yeah, a couple real quick. So for Instagram, just uh, X underscore Seekers underscore of underscore Fortune. Um, and then also... Uh, Check out Megamoth Studios on YouTube. Please like and subscribe. Hit the bell to receive notifications. We will be posting every episode of the podcast, as well as uh, how-to guides, breakdowns of cards, other interesting content about the journey and making of the game, um, as well as any other sort of gameplay resources. And then last but not least, the demo of the game, free to play, is available on tabletopia.com. You can search for X Seekers of Fortune. We will have links on all of our social media um, as well as the website. Please go sign up, play, send us your feedback. We absolutely need to make sure these cards are not busted before we print them. 
because if we print busted cards, that's on you. That's on you for not playing. That's on you. It's not on us. No, it is. It's on us. But anyway, that's all I've got. All right. All right, Fortune Seekers. Yeah, let's go ahead and uh, sign off for this one. But we'll be seeing you next time in Episode 5. Talk all to right, you guys. soon. Thank you. Appreciate you. Bye. Bye-bye.